Let's take our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, every, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, whom, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, what wonderful words, words of life, words of assurance, humbling words that reveal your covenant love to your people and, and even the covenant that you have with your son. So Lord, as we look into these wonderful truths that you would encourage our souls and, and though we may be downcast at times, help us not to lose heart knowing that, uh, that it's only for a little while that we must endure these things. And we look forward to that great day of the revelation of our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, be seated, please. Yeah. So Ephesians, uh, you know that Ephesians has long been recognized as the treasure chest of God's great riches uh, to his people. It's also been known as the church manual. Uh, it is, without a doubt, one of the great, great books of uh, Pauline uh, authorship. Uh, he would... Uh, break down the book in, in classic uh, Pauline fashion, and it is also the means by which the Christian life is lived. In chapters 1 through 3, we have the great doctrines of the gospel, uh, unfolding the uh, unsearchable riches of Christ. And if you were to read the first three doctrinal chapters, and I encourage you to do so, uh, verse 8 of chapter 3 would be the key verse. Paul would say, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that is truly what Ephesians is, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then uh, Paul would shift in chapter 4 through the end of the, of the letter, 4, 5, and 6, and the great doctrines of the gospel applied. And so he deals with all relationships uh, in, the, uh, in the human realm as well as the warfare that we are called to. And the key verse in the application of the gospel would be uh, chapter 4, and verse 1 and 2, which we will look at later. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So you see the wonderful truth of the predestined love of God is manifested in how we live in the latter part of the letter. But as we sang that song, um, the, the first song, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and this is just by way of introduction, if you'll notice in verse 6, as well as in verse 12, 
and verse 14, we find the ultimate goal of redemption. And we find the ultimate goal of all things that God does. And it, it is in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then we have in verse 12, uh, that might be to the praise of His glory. And then in verse 14, to the praise of His glory again. And so we have three times strategically placed within this unfolding one continual sentence of verse 3 through 14, um, Paul would remind us that all the treasure chests of riches that we have in Christ are certainly ours to enjoy, but ultimately they appoint away from us and to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His grace. And that will become very important as we understand more and more what God has called us to be. And what He's called us to be is to be a people on display of His grace before our watching world as well as in throughout eternity. If anything, we could look at those verses and say that we are to be trophies of grace. We are to be on display before a watching world unto the praise of His glory and unto the praise of His grace. And if anything tonight, if you walk away from a greater understanding uh, that you and I are recipients of amazing grace, the electing grace of God, for the purpose that we would be trophies of His grace put on display so that others would see the wonders of such a God that would display His grace and His love to us. Now, by way of setting the stage for this, is I want us to, to consider the covenant of redemption. And some of you may know about and have read about the covenant of redemption. There's been some uh, speculation whether it's, uh, that's true because it's not explicitly uh, stated in the scripture. I believe it is true. I believe the covenant of redemption is, is a wonderful truth. It is, the, uh, re, it is the covenant that was made between the Father and the Son before time in all eternity. And it would be that the Father would give the Son a people for his own possession. Uh, Philip Gillespie was a 17th century English divine, and he said that the covenant of redemption is, quote this, it is an eternal transaction and agreement between Jehovah and the mediator, end quote. Now, when you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, you can get the implication of this. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, who chose us, the Father, what, in Christ, when, before we were even thought about and so as a result here, this covenant of redemption is a wonderful source of, of encouragement and assurance for us because even before we even thought about, even before you know, sin became into the, into the human experience, we have this, this pact, this covenant between the Father and the Son in the, in the councils of the eternal, uh, in the eternal tribunal between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that the God the Father is going to give His Son a possession. He's going to give Him the church. He's going to give him a people. And we have the implication of that in Ephesians 1.4. But it's even more implied, if not even explicitly stated, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, at least seven times, you will have the Lord himself to his Father will mention a people that you have given me. A people that you have given me. In verse 2, he says, Since you, Father, have given authority over all flesh, given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Uh, yours they were, and you gave them to me. And then John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
And then in John 17, verse 11 and 12, we have two more uh, indications of this, that the Father is thanking the, the, uh, the Son, um, the Son is thanking the Father or petitioning the Father and reminding Him that you have given Him uh, a people for His own possession. Now, I want you to be encouraged by that. That is a great source of, of, of assurance, is knowing that it's not because of, of the value of who we are. It is because of the covenant pact between the Father and the Son that the Father has looked down through all of history, through all of time, eternity, and He said that I am going to give you a, a people that has been bought by your very blood and that they're going to be yours forever to be on display under the praise of my glory, under the praise of my grace. Uh, that shouting grounds is because it has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with, you know, well, did I, did I receive Jesus? Did I believe? I mean, that's going to happen. Why is that going to happen in time and space? Repentance and faith? Because it happened before time and space. And it's because you have this wonderful doctrine of election that the Father looks to the Son and says, I am going to give you a people for my, your own possession. And when you go through doubts and fears and unbelief and all that, this can lift you out of the, out of the doldrums because you have been given over to the Son as a trophy of grace, of God the Father's grace. And so I want us to go back in, in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Actually, you never left. I did. Um, is he, <laughs> I want you to look, to look at a couple of things here. I want us to consider just four. Just four of these, uh, these great blessings. There's so much more. And you could spend weeks upon months in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. To unfold those, uh, the treasure chest of God's blessings. But my goal tonight was to encourage you. To encourage you as God's faithful is that you would know and be able to grasp what has happened in this transition transaction that the Father gave you to the Son. And you may look at yourself and you may say, well, my life doesn't reflect a whole lot of family traits. And yeah, that's true. We don't always uh, portray family traits. It doesn't mean that we're not in the family. It means, you know, that, uh, that we are works in progress. And we will, we will, as we grow older and, and, and mature in Christ, we will manifest uh, family traits. It says, you know, you take on the traits in your physical family. And I kept thinking, no, nah, I don't look anything like my parents. And then uh, I, I, I looked in the mirror one morning recently, and my dad lived in us now for 14 months. I looked and I thought, oh, my. What's my dad doing in the mirror? And, you know, and someone has told me, he says, you look more and more like your dad with each passing day. I don't know if that's an affirmation or the fact is I'm getting old as well as he is. But it's true. We do take on family traits. And so when we consider uh, the, these aspects of God's riches in Christ Jesus to us, I want us to walk through this by way of just encouragement. Not a pure, deep um, exposition, surely not spending one verse like we did this morning and look at the heinous nature of sin. But I want to highlight which are four of the most important truths that you can understand and grasp as a Christian. They will rule the day when you feel anything but like a Christian. And the first one is this. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption. Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now the he is obviously the father. So do you look at yourself through the lens of adoption? Do I, 
look to myself and seeing how God sees me. And that is one of the keys to being able to live successful. And I hate to use the word successful or victorious Christian living. It should say more faithfulness and more joy. Is you must learn to, to have God let you see yourself as he sees you, not as you see yourself. Because sometimes we can be overly, overly critical and overly sensitive. And, and I know that it's true for, for a lot of us, at times all of us, because we want to honor the Lord and we find how for, false and short we do. And yet when we look at ourselves first and then look to God, it's never a good way. It's never a good thing. Is you want to look at yourself and how God sees you and remember his immutability is that he never changes, his decrees never change, is that he has from the foundation of the earth adopted us. And so um, how you see yourself in the realm of adoption, and we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 8 about adoption because I don't think we get that well as Christians. We need to understand more what it means being in God's family, being in an adopted state never to be disowned, never to be uh, thrown out because of poor performance. And so J.I. Packer said this, and I thought this was really good. Uh, it's, in, it's from his book, Knowing God. He said, quote, you sum, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's own Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls our worship and prayers, then our whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Now, that's worthy of pondering. Is do you see yourself? Did you come this morning and even coming tonight? Did you see that you're coming to really, in some ways, the weekly family reunion, and that you're coming to gather with uh, with brothers and sisters? We know that by title, but we know that by experience, to where we're all coming to a like father, a like father who has adopted us in His Son, and He adopted us knowing how messed up we truly are, and He adopted us knowing that we would not measure up. And knowing that we would constantly uh, find ourselves fumbling and bumbling and stumbling all the way to heaven. And yet he looks at us and he stamps on us, mine, my possession. And yes, I know everything about you, Jim. And you know what? I still love you. And, you know, that's an important truth to remember as a Christian. Is that you are always with we always held in the loving arms and hands of the Father. And Jesus says, and no one will take them out of my Father's hand. And no one will take them out of my hand. So it's almost like we've got this, this dual clasp upon us that he would tell us in the Gospel of John. And so the first thing that we have is that we are adopted. We live in the realm of a forever family, never to be disowned. And, and so what the world needs to see, because what we see in America today, and you know this quite well, you're, you're a keen to what's happening, is we are seeing the very destruction of the fiber of society, and that is the family. Uh, the family is the foundation of, of, of civility and is the foundation of society and families are being under siege and that they are being absolutely destroyed and so what the world needs to see is to see a functional family so to speak and to, to see a real family and there's no more real family than that of the family of God 
It is the family of God in our realm of adopted children. And that, what that means is that when the world out here, I was uh, talking to someone coming in uh, this morning uh, before we came over here before 8 o'clock, and there was someone playing basketball on the court all by himself. Tall, very tall. And, um, and, and I looked at him from a distance, and I thought I knew him. And so I start to walk a little bit across the street, and he yells, Hey, Pastor. And sure enough, uh, it was someone, uh, he's 20 years old now, it was someone that used to come here in Awana. Uh, he, was, uh, he's tw- he was 12, uh, 13, 12, 10, 11, 12, in that age. Uh, he used to come here, and he came from a very rough family, a very, very hard family. And, you know, and he went through some rough times, and I... I immediately recognized him. We started talking, and he was giving me an update. I said, give me an update on your life. What's happening? And I knew his name, and, and we started talking. He goes, I need to get to church. He says, I need to get there. He says, you know, he says, uh, I have a daughter. And I said, oh, really? I said, well, you've just entered into the most noblest and the most humbling experience you are having in your life, and that's being a father. And I said, we want to help you with that. I said, Come. He says, I am. He says, I, did. I said, are you working? He said, I am. He says, I got a job. He goes, I live in Warwick. I said, come. He goes, I am. He said, I want to. He says, I, I, need, I need this for me, and I need it for my girl. And so I thought, you know, here's an individual who never had a, a, a model, who never had, but yet in the midst of all the chaos and all the, the trauma is that there's still this, he's looking for, he's looking for family. He's looking for something that will help in family. And you know the best place to find the model of the family? It should be in the family of God. And it should be us who are adopted children. That we practice what we will talk later on. We'll, we practice a love that what? Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. That looks beyond ourselves and looks unto him who adopted us into the family through the person of the Lord Jesus. And 1 John 3, 1 tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. I love the word so we are. Because it's a continual, it's a continual present tense that says that never changes. It doesn't matter, you know, there's a times when I was growing up that I probably did not uh, live up to the family name. There were things that probably I shouldn't have done, yet I never was disowned by my parents, and that's fallen people. And so the first thing we see then is this adoption, and I hope that you'll, you'll marvel more that God has adopted you in his family so that you would be under the praise of the glory of the Father and of the Son. And as the world sees the reality of that family that we have with each other and the family of God, then it'll be like a magnet because we were wired for family. We are wired for um, a relationship with the Father that goes beyond Creator into that of eternal Heavenly Father. Number two, look at verse seven. Here's the second great blessing we have in Christ, and that is the blessing of redemption, of redemption. Now, I hope that you will see how these four truths are what will shape all of your Christian life. It will give you an attitude adjustment. It will help you renew your mind. The first one, adoption. The second one is redemption. Verse 7, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. I realize that uh, the crowd that's here tonight, you are, th- you are theologians, you know these words, you know redemption, that you could, you could stand up here as, as well, if not perhaps better than myself, and, and give the, the textbook definition of redemption. 
Um, and so when you think about redemption, I would ask you, do you think about redemption? Uh, do you think about what has happened to you by way of redemption? Is it, Christ isn't to save you. Uh, he redeemed you. He, he set you free. He liberated you. He delivered you. And he, he released you from a bondage that you could not release yourself. It was a payment of, of a ransom. That's what redemption means. It doesn't mean that, you know, we were, that uh, we were, um, that Satan, you know, had to have a ransom given to him. That's not what that means. What it does mean, though, is that there was a, there was a, a, a wrath-appeasing sacrifice that was necessary in order for us to be able to be adopted and to be able to enjoy uh, this aspect of redemption. And this redemption, as I mentioned, it means to be liberated. And here's the great truth about redemption. Whatever you're struggling with tonight, whatever Christian, whatever, whatever sin that we are finding that's besetting us and we find ourselves stumbling constantly, you know, redemption has bought you to the point where the power of the Redeemer is able you to, to deliberate from that, to be liberated from that. You don't have to be enslaved to anything. Is it we truly can? I'm not saying it's not a fight. But the whole issue of redemption is that you would be bought off of the, uh, of the slave market of sin and Satan no longer under bondage so that you would walk under the freedom or the yoke of the Lord Jesus because of his redemptive uh, price he paid for us. And so w when you think about adoption, there's that familiar relationship, but then there's that redemption that has bought you so that you're able to do what my outline has said to you. We're able to do the master's will. And here, here's what redemption does for us. Redemption buys us not only off the slave market of sin and Satan, but it buys, off, buys us out of the bondage of self-love. It, 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 it frees us from the bondage of all about me, uh, the selfishness of self-love. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. He redeemed that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian life is simply this. Is that being a slave of Christ gives you the greatest possible freedom you could ever have. Whereas we think that there is freedom in sin, there's actually bondage. Redemption sets us on the path to fulfill God's will and to live uh, under the control of his love. And do you know what happens when I start to realize what redemption means? That the Lord Jesus and the Father loved me so much that from eternity past, they picked me to be an adopted member of his family. And as a result, they're going to uh, make sure that that is able to happen because the redemption price is paid. You know what that should do to us when we take the theological truth? And by the way, I've said this numerous times. Make sure your theology is inflaming your heart. Theology is not just to, to, to fill your head full of good stuff. Theology is to inflame your heart to the end of the day that you live under the praise of his glory. You live under the, unto a greater and a deeper love for the redeemer. And that when we concentrate on what he did for us in the wonders of the gospel in redemption, then it can't help but 
but cause us to love him more. There was a story of an orphaned uh, little boy. He had lived with his grandmother for some time, and their house caught on fire. Now, the grandmother was trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy, and she perished in the flames. The boy was crying out for help, and uh, finally there was a man who was outside walking down and heard the boy uh, lamenting and is crying out. So what he did was he climbed up the inferno. This house was on fire. He climbed up an iron drain pipe, and he went up and he got the boy, and the boy hung, grabbed a hold of his neck, and he was returning down the pipe, and he got there, and uh, the boy was saved. And this was a long time ago. Several weeks passed, and there was a public hearing that who would take uh, care of the orphan boy? Well, there was a farmer, and there was a teacher, and there was the town's wealthiest citizen that all wanted to take care of the boy, to give him a name, and to give him a home. And they all gave legitimate reasons why they should be the one to take him home. As they talked about uh, the farmer, the teacher, and the, and the wealthy individual, as they talked and wanting the boy, the lad never looked up at any of them. He had his head da- bowed down, you know, obviously grieving from his grandmother, but also his head was bowed down. What is he even looking up? Well, the story goes on. It says, a stranger walked to the front of the hearing and never said a word, but slowly took out his hands from his pockets And showed the authorities the scars on his hands. And the crowd gasped as they looked at the heinous nature of his hands. And the boy raised his eyes and looked at the man and looked at his hands. And he cried out in recognition. This was the man who climbed the drain pipe and rescued him. It was the man who was burned extensively from climbing to rescue the boy. And with a leap, the boy jumped up and he ran to the the man with the scarred hands and he threw his arm around his neck like he did when he came out of the burning house and he held on for dear life. The other men, the farmer, the teacher, and the wealthy man, they all walked away not not saying a word, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. The hearing immediately concluded And the boy was given to the man with the marred hands. That's what redemption does. It's designed to make us be enamored by our our Redeemer. To see that it wasn't just marred hands. It was marred feet. It was a marred brow. It was a slit in his side. It was the worst of worst to be forsaken by the Father. So that we would not be forsaken. And so we see then that because of God's great love and and that we are to model before the world not only our adoption, modeling family traits, but our redemption. Our redemption is that we live as bought people and as bought people out of love for the Redeemer, we long to do His will. We long to follow His ways. And when we fall, we look and find nail-scarred hands picking us up and thus carrying us on to fight another day. There's a third blessing we see. It's also in verse 7. The third blessing of uh, what we receive in, in Christ unto the praise of the glory of God the Father's grace. And that is what is the joy in our life. And, and that would be a clear conscience. A clear conscience. Conscience is important. And I got a, re- a book recommendation. Uh, I don't think a sermon would be complete without one. Uh, a book recommendation by Christopher Ash. 
It's, it's, it's titled, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience. He does a wonderful job of showing us, you know, everywhere from how conscience can be good, conscience is unreliable. He talks about the various aspects of conscience. It is an extremely helpful book uh, on conscience. And so there is no greater joy in life than to have a clear conscience before God. And, and Paul would tell us that we have forgiveness and a clear conscience comes from guilt being removed. It comes from uh, knowing that we stand clean before our God because of the Redeemer. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? And what is the agent of cleansing? It's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. Ash, in his book, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience, would say, quote, The good news of Jesus Christ can enable any of us to enjoy a clear conscience with honesty, integrity, and thankfulness, end quote. And so, if you look and see what unfolds in Ephesians chapter 1, these are absolutely praiseworthy works of God, that in Christ, he has granted to us a forever adoption into his family, he has redeemed us so that we would be able to do the will of the Father, the will of the Son, understanding we were bought with a tremendous price that fuels love for the Redeemer. And thirdly, we have the greatest experience and the greatest need that any human being would have, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And whatever sin that you've committed tonight, wherever you think you are and you think that your life has been nothing but a train wreck and there's no hope for you, I got news for you. First uh, John 1 John 1.9 tells us that he cleanses us from all sin. There is nothing that is in our past that can't be forgiven. There is nothing in our presence that cannot be liberated from. That's what the sacrifice of Christ did. And then we finally, in verse 11, uh, we, have, we have our future home and our future hope, and that would be heaven, heaven. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In the Old Testament, inheritance was associated with land, it was God giving the promised land to his people. In the New Testament, uh, the inheritance includes land, heaven, but it also includes hope, hope. And that hope that we, uh, that we uh, hold to is found in what the Apostle Peter would describe as our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So as I asked you uh, in the very beginning, have you thought much about your, your adoption? Have you thought much about heaven recently? Have you thought much about, you know, what heaven is? And not just that I just, I want to get out of here. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we do want to get out of here. This is a miserable world. It's not going to get better. But have you thought uh, that the more you think about heaven, the more that you're weaned from the world? The key, to, the key to heavenly thinking, I should say the key to holy living, is grounded in heavenly thinking. And it's not that heavenly thinking that is monastic, that you want to climb up on a hill somewhere and, and just start meditating and wait for the second coming of Christ. That's not what that is. Is that this heavenly thinking is, is what roots your worldview and it roots everything in what you see unfolding before us. Is you see that we are pilgrims, exiles, far away from... Um, when, I, when I first joined the Navy, I, I lived in Italy for three years. That was my first assignment, a ship uh, out of a small fishing village in Italy. And uh, I was a fish out of water. I mean, I didn't speak Italian. We don't, we don't teach Italian in West Virginia. 
Uh, we don't do that. And so uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't speak it. I didn't know much about it. I just knew that I was like a fish out of water. Uh, that I was not, you know, this, this was hard. I mean, I'm, I'm an 18-year-old kid, wet behind the ears, never seen the ocean until I joined the Navy. Next thing you know, I'm living 5,000 miles in a town that I don't know any the language, and I'm on a ship of about 1,200 guys that I don't know. And so I was very homesick. I was very homesick, and the intensity of not, of not being home was really hard. And so as we got closer to coming home, it was three years, as it got closer, the intensity of coming home increased. It may not be the best of illustrations, but that's how it should be for us with heaven. There should be such an intensity of wanting to go home, of wanting to go and to be with the one who's adopted us in his family, to see our Redeemer face to face, and to forever live out that clear conscience in a glorified state. All those three blessings of Ephesians 1 culminate with the inheritance of a place and a person. And heaven isn't just a place, it's also the person of heaven. And that's primarily what the draw is of heaven. It's the one who has adopted us, redeemed us, and given us forgiveness, a clear conscience, so that we could be, what? Under the praise of his glory forever and ever and ever. So those are uh, very important uh, aspects of what God has given us in Christ. When Peter would say the inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable means untouched by death. It means undefiled, unsustained by, uh, unstained by evil, and unfading, unimpaired by time. And so we have, this is where we're headed. We're at a place that death will be no more. There'll be no more evil. And there'll be no, no more hindrances on time. That's where we're headed. And if we think more like that, because uh, we are to be on display of His grace in this world, it will free us from worldliness. It will intensify our longing to be with Him who has made heaven our home. All right, let's, uh, in a little bit of the time we have left, let's, let's make some application. Um, and I want to do this from Ephesians chapter, as I told you, 1 through 3 is doctrinal, 4 through 6 is application. I want to take uh, a couple here, 4, and it'll, it'll go quickly, 4 of these in regards to application. So because God has done all this, because he has just absolutely just showered us with rich blessings under the praise of his glory in Christ, because we know the privilege of adoption, of redemption, of a clear conscience, and of heaven, what, what is our responsibilities? We don't just coast to heaven. Uh, We are responsible. We are stewards of all these rich blessings of God in Christ. And so I've I've kind of bulletized these with two words for each one. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. The first thing we see as a good steward of God's blessings, if we are to be on display uh, of Christ's grace, the Father's grace in Christ, then we are to walk worthy of that adoption. We are to walk worthy. He would say, I therefore. We could take the therefore of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 and drive it all the way back to all of the doctrinal truth. And we could say, I therefore, in light of the doctrinal truth of your position in Christ, of all the rich blessings of the treasure chests of blessings in Christ, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, redeemed of the Lord, we urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And that worthy calling is to walk worthy of the gospel. Paul would tell the, uh, the Philippians, same thing. In, excuse me, chapter 1, that walk worthy of the gospel. And so what would that walk look like? 
Well, if you look in verse 2 of Ephesians 4, it's a walk of humility, it's a walk of gentleness, it's a walk of patience, and it's a walk of love. Can you imagine the impact in our world if every day we walked in our families, and I'm not saying we don't, we can always do more, is that if every Christian in every relationship walked in humility, gentleness, patience, in love, people would be knocking down the, the door like the Greeks saying, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And so that's our first responsibility because of all we have in Christ. Let's walk worthy of what he says and what he has given us. Remember, trophies of grace are to be observed. And we're being observed in the world. And one of the worst things we can do is to give the world a contradiction to what we say and how we live. Let's remember that we are to profess and practice the gospel. The gospel is not only proclaimed, but the gospel is affirmed, and it's affirmed by a walk that is worthy. So that's our first application of these rich blessings in Christ, is that we would walk worthy. Secondly, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, we would speak gracefully. You want to get the quickest assessment of where you are spiritually? It's your prayer life, and it's your speech. It's your prayer life, and it's your speech. And it's not your speech on perhaps a Sunday when we're here and we got our Sunday best on, inside and out. It, it could vary. Uh, the measurement of your, speak, uh, your speech, whether it's graceful, following the traits of adoption, and like our elder brother, Lord Jesus, it'll be in what you're going to be here in about 20 minutes when you go home. And in those who know you best in the job, in your family. How you speak there is what you truly are, not how you may speak in public on a Sunday. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt or protruding talk, petrifying talk, come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. You remember when Jesus walked into the synagogue and the attendant gave him the scroll of Isaiah and he read it? And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he goes through and preaches what the gospel does. It sets the captives free. It, it, it releases the oppressed. And it says, the people said of him. And Jesus gives the scroll back to the attendant. And he sat down. And this is what the people said of Jesus. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Friends, let's strive for that type of testimony. That when people, when our name is dropped in a conversation or that we uh, are known in, in our circles, let it, let it be said of us that gracious words come out of our mouth. Now, I'm not saying, that let's, let's uh, you know, I, I, love, I love jokes and I, uh, I love sarcasm. That, that works too. I like that. I mean, all that is good. I do, and there's nothing wrong with those type of things, but let's make sure that the, the overall, that our, our, our voice, we have a reputation of being a gracious person and that we speak with words that are, as Colossians would say, always be gracious and that they are for the building up and not the tearing down. Our, our testimony of our adoption and our redemption will be affirmed or not affirmed by the quality of our speech. So then, 
what's our stewardship of all these rich blessings in Christ? One, walk worthy of the blessings. Number two, speak gracefully. And number three, live sacrificially. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself. Here, this is why the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Is it always scripture to scripture? It's, it's interesting that Paul would say, walk in love. And then he gives the model and then the action. He says, walk in love. There's the command, Ephesians 5, 2. And then he would give the model as Christ loved us. And then he would give the action, gave himself. There is the whole, there is the whole life of love right there. There's the command. There's the model. Remember what Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35? A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all the world will know your mind, by your love for one another. And so we find Paul having that echoing in him as he writes this. Walk in love as Christ loved us, the model, and here is the measurement of love or the action of love, gave himself. And how does that translate to you and me? Simply this. Is we let Christ be the model in humility and dependence, we look unto him and that we would give ourselves in the service of others for his sake and unto the praise of the glory of his grace. And so that's why sacrificial service matters. And it's not measured by your commitment to a program an hour and a half each week. It's, it's your commitment to live so close to the master that he rubs off on you and you find yourself not selective in your service, but you find these random acts of kindness marking your character and it happens to stranger and, and, and brothers and sisters alike. We're marked by a people of love. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then finally, finally, to apply these rich blessings of God to apply adoption, redemption, clear conscience or forgiveness, heaven being our home. One, walk worthy. Two, speak gracefully. Three, live sacrificially. And finally, fight valiantly. Fight valiantly. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against all the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul said these things in his last letter. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice what he says, I have fought the good fight. And I pray that every one of us, unless the Lord comes back, when it's time for your memorial service, one of the things that will be said, and perhaps even written on your stone in a cemetery, is that he or she fought the good fight. We have, finished the, we have finished the race. Now, when you ha- if you're going to fight the good fight, there's a couple things. I'm going I'm to close with this one. I'll give you a little, little Navy uh, illustration here. Is it, you know, because as you know, that's all I got. Um, <laughs> but the, um, when I was in, and the, uh, the amount of time I, I was in with all that sea duty, I worked in uh, a place called the Combat Information Center. 
Um, my my job was just that, is it was all all the all the neat that was the neat place where you know radars and weapons and all the fun stuff, all the video games. So that's where all that stuff happened, and I just it was really exciting to be a part of that. Um, I used to I used to chuckle. I would walk through the ship, you know, and there was so many people on the ship, you know, their different jobs, whether it be supply, whether it be engineering or admin, and all that matters. You need all of those people. Uh, the fact is, I would chuckle because they didn't have a clue what we were doing. You know, and I knew. I mean, I was in the intelligence community. I was in the, in the, the place where um, we, we launch helicopters, we control aircraft, that kind of stuff. So, but one thing about my job is that it was, we were unemployed in port. Uh, we didn't have much to do except prepare to go to sea. And every time we get ready to deploy and go wherever we were going, whether it be the Middle East or whether it be the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, we would send a bunch of, uh, of our guys, and, and I went on a couple of the trips with these guys. We would send them for three, three, weeks of, three weeks of training. And the three weeks was just this, from eight to five, Monday through Friday, three weeks, all we did was study threat assessment. We studied threat assessment to all the countries that we were going to be with around and what their threat was to us. And it was just on and on. And you'd take these exams of all these missile matrices and all the, the, the threats to us. And so that was just grilled into us. And the reason why that's, that was so vital is because you have to know your enemy. And it's the same thing in this I fought the good fight. If we're going to live under the praise of his glory, then we need to know the enemy. And we need to know what the enemy's threats are to us. Because the devil wants to, can't get directly to Christ, so how does he get to Christ? He gets Christ through the church and through us. And so you need to know the enemy's tactics. You need to know, you know his, 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 his threat, his threat assessment. The secondly, you need to know your weaponry. You need to know what you are capable of doing. And you need to know what God has provided for us in the fight if we're going to fight the good fight. Well, my ship, you know, uh, or ships, um, I did not, I, I wasn't into any of the ships that weren't having uh, war fighting capabilities. I wanted to be on warships. I didn't want to be on logistic ships or floating gas stations or grocery stores. I didn't want any of that, you know. That was boring. I wanted to be on ships that would see action. And so we would, I understood that we were geared for certain things. I was on certain ships that the only, our main weaponry was anti-air warfare. That's what we were, that's what we were focused on. We weren't good at chasing submarines. And I was on some, on other ships that we were good at chasing submarines. So it varies. But the, the points I want to get is we need to know our weaponry. We need to know what God has provided for us so that we can fight the good fight. And then finally, you must know your tactics. And when I say that, is that you must know uh, how to fight. And we used to have, we had a filing cabinets full of classified publications that were designed for tactics, that we had to break those out, and there were tactics that we would use depending on different situations. And so, do you know the devil's tactics against you? Do you know the enemy, the threat? Do you know uh, what God has provided for you by way of weaponry? And do you know your, your own uh, way to fight? And Jesus gives us the model in his own temptation in the wilderness. So that's what we have to do if we're going to be trophies of grace in the world. We need to fight valiantly this good fight that God has called us to. I'm fearful that so many Christians don't even know they're in a fight. They don't even know they're in a battle. And John Owen would say to this effect, he says, if you're not aware of the spiritual war that you're in every day, you're already slain. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's so true is that we need to, as trophies of his grace, we're the objects of Satan's uh, certainly maliciousness. And you know why that's true? Because the devil looks at us with great coveting and great envy because he will never receive what we have received. And what have we received? Adoption, redemption, a clear conscience in heaven. The devil will know none of that. And so when he sees that we get what he will never get, it just enrages. And the revelation says he knows his time is short, so his wrath comes with great vengeance. So let's think about the great riches we have in Christ. And uh, as a result, let's be good stewards of those riches. Father, thank you so much for loving us. And thank you for being uh, such a good God and providing for all we need. And Lord, help us to remember our redemption, our adoption, our home in heaven, our forgiveness. And may we be good stewards. May we walk worthy of these things. Speak graciously. And Lord, may we fight diligently. May we, we certainly be those type of people uh, that are marked by good speech so that we can give testimony to the reality of the great Redeemer under the praise of His glory. Lord, protect my brothers and sisters as they go about this evening as well as into the arena of warfare tomorrow, uh, that they will walk close to You, uh, that they will be beacons of hope and light in their homes as well as their communities. Uh, and may you bring us back uh, again midweek uh, that we can encourage one another, that we can practice being the family. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.